I'm Sam Mitchell and these are my stories. This is life. This is life. This is what I know. This is what I know. So to me, so to me, this is life. This is life. Hey folks, how are you today? Today, let me the first of all you to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Now, before we get messed up, I'm not a psychiatrist. If you're starting to be diagnosed with autism, please see a physician. I always based on my experiences. As for the right to the intro natural, they're found on ytmp3.com. I also have missed statement to review with all of you. The mission of Autism Rocks Rolls is to take the stigma off of autism and other conditions that may or disabilities. People on spectrum are not broken and not need to be fixed. Those that conditions or those who are to be pitied, there's nothing to be sorry about. I also have some people I'd like to thank. First, I need to thank my latest guest, Adrian Nassim, at C245 Bloom with Adrian Nassim for more information. But what a great lady with an adorable service dog. I also need to say that my guest BJ Yoho for the listeners C142, identical yet opposites by BJ Yoho. But if you're looking for inspiration, not just only to his podcast, but check out his TED Talk too about kindness and gratitude, which I'll post that in the show notes below. A while ago, my boy and I had the post Summerfest meet. We determined that this event was worth doing. We all spoke with our dear friend Elizabeth Monroe from the Doug Flutie Jr. Autism Foundation. After our meet, it was clear that she would be helping with some upcoming projects. Several Thursdays ago, I participated in a podcast panel with Mitch Harley and his friends. This panel was about the generals of podcasting. Thank you, Mitch. I had a great time. I've even had the time to do some networking events with three new groups. First, I did free business networking through the Happy Business Project in the United Kingdom. Then switched to the next one, which was EE through Exceptional Entrepreneurs, with the last one being the Virtual Professional Network Mixer through Tamar Bibbs. I did see a shiny bunch of new faces. And since the last episode, I've appeared on the Spread the Positive podcast with Trent Denson, the Living Well with Bad Habits podcast with married couple Dave and Ashley Shannon, the How to Heal podcast with Kai Muhammad, and the Beauty and the Mess podcast with fellow Hoosier Michelle Sims. What a great group of podcasts, everyone. Now, full street right back for here and ad from the farm on Maryland Ridge, so let's get to it. Here's the hand gem in Easter Green County, folks. Fowler's Pumpkin Patch in the farm on Maryland Ridge. Autism Rocks and Rolls is very proud to tell you about our friends Harry and Renee Fowler and their place of business. Both Fowler Pumpkin Patch and the farm on Maryland Ridge is a relaxing drive approximately 15 minutes from the heart of Bloomington, Indiana, and an hour south of Indianapolis. You can find them at 5347 South Green County Line Road, Bloomington, Indiana, 47403. The property has numerous picture locations, including several rolling rustic fields, antique tractors, red and rustic barns, trees, and much more. Customized wedding packages are offered on their website. Their surrounding areas provides to several hotels in which to have your guests stay in for your destination wedding. Also, Fowler's Pumpkin Patch is a family-owned operational seasonal pumpkin patch. It's a perfect place to take your family for some fall fun. Enjoy picking up pumpkins, hay rides, or corn maids and a petting zoo. Call the Fowler's Day at 812-327-4895 or 812-325-6022. All right, folks, we're back. And yes, you'll definitely hear the words I do at this wedding barn. Today, I interview the comeback coach, Richard Kaufman. After appearing on his podcast, Vertical Momentum Resiliency, I knew he would be coming on. Richard Kaufman is an Army veteran who has been out with drug addiction, alcoholism, PTSD, blindness, and even not having a roof over his head. Through his work as a coach and author, he has helped countless individuals navigate their own hero journey from darkness to light. His book, A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light, chronicles his personal journey of overcoming challenges and finding success in both his personal and professional lives. Through sharing his story, he hopes to inspire and empower others to find their own path towards resilience and success. Please welcome the one and only Richard Kaufman to my show. Richard, my good friend, long time no see. How we been, man? I'm so blessed to be able to call you friend and brother. I'm so grateful that I actually got to meet and chat with Big Foley because of talking to you. So I just want to say thank you for starting that friendship. For listeners, C145 gained hardcore with Mick Foley. Amazing dude. And also, I love your show and I listen to every episode. My son is on the spectrum and he's doing very, very well. And he actually listens to your show also and gets a lot of tips. So thank you for that. You're welcome, man. So my first question to you is with all the conditions you've had, because you've had a lot, PTSD and blindness and much more. We'll call it just a beautiful mixture of conditions. What does having all the conditions in one mean to you? It means I'm grateful for what I do have and not grateful for what I don't have. Anything that I have going on, I call it a superpower. I don't call it a problem or a disorder. Even if it's a negative, I'm going to switch it over to a positive. So some people say, well, I don't have half of my seeing, but my hearing is almost double. I do the same thing, man. I think there's always positives and negative situations. Situations. Even if you don't think there is, if you look really hard, there's going to be one little dot of light. My mentor, Mr. Ed, he says that things happen for you. They don't happen to you. And everything is a teachable moment. So I look at everything in my life has brought me to this exact 
exact moment sitting on a podcast with Sam Mitchell. So everything that ever happened in my life has brought me to this moment. Faith has a reason, man. I'm all about it, brother. Now, what were your initial thoughts when you saw you had your superpowers? I had to figure out how... I was going to use him because if Superman never came out of the telephone booth, who cares what powers he had? I had to step out of the booth and figure out how am I going to use my mess and how am I going to turn it into my message? So that's when I had to decide what can I do to help other people that are struggling with what I'm dealing with or maybe a lot more. Exactly. And there are a lot of people who are probably been in your situation or have not had all of these superpowers. They had one. I don't care who you are. If you look at your friends in your circle, everybody is dealing with some whether it's depression anxiety imposter syndrome so if we just put what we're dealing with out there's people that are out there that are willing to help us but we have to say listen i'm struggling with this i need help with it asking help is the hardest thing to do for me it wasn't but i know some people who are just like yeah i don't think i should you're like i was struggling when you first came on my show you're one of my first guests and now we're in the top 0.5 percent we've had over 800,000 downloads with 500,000 social media impressions but i had to ask john lee dumas i need help i don't know what i do so if i didn't humble myself i would have been able to have somebody like you come on my show to start with. it's incredible with health because we came back to a full circle i think we were both in the beginning stages of the podcast when we first met now look at us man i'm in the top 200 podcast with canada you're in the point fives area that's saying something right but it's all a matter of me and you do we put in the reps we fail a lot but we fail forward people think that failure is a person but failure is not a person it's an event someone my mentor said if you want to succeed you got to fail a lot now with someone with your story does it all shape the way you operate. Yes, I operate from a place of empathy because I've been there, I've done that, I feel that I want to help people that were in my situation or even worse situation because I know what it feels to be lonely. I know what it feels to be homeless. I know what it feels to be eating out of garbage cans and being addicted to drugs and alcohol. And I try to keep it real every day. I remember where I come from and I don't take it for granted. But in order for me to be the man that I am today with a beautiful wife, beautiful house, three beautiful children, I have to remember that three miles away from my house is where I was living in a crack house, eating out of dented cans that I found in the garbage. Halloween's coming up. If I would be any Superman or superpower, it would be Empathy Man. Because I'm the biggest empathy guy in the world. I feel pain for everybody and everyone. Empathy Man sounds like your power for sure, but what would you do to help out that's not shooting lasers? My costume would just a big E, and then it would be just a big guy, muscular guy, with big shoulders that somebody can cry on and lean on and really big friggin' ears where people can sit there and talk and listen. Maybe not give advice, but just be there for somebody to be able to listen. There's a difference between hearing and active listening. And I think some people just need to be heard, not need to be talked down to or talked to. Yeah, but then there's some people out there who I'm not trying to say can't hear it, but once you hear it, they like to give advice. And sometimes we clearly don't need the advice, but... It's something I work on to this day. I went out with a cousin of mine and we went out for dinner. She doesn't want to hear any of the advice. So eventually I just, all right, I'm just going to stop giving it. I'm not even going to mention it. I call them ask holes, A-S-K hole. There's somebody that just ask and ask and ask. And then when you give them advice, they never follow through. I don't even give an opinion on anymore. I just nod my head and be like, okay, you know, you got the answers. I don't have the answers. It's a waste of time in a sense, isn't it? But if somebody says, you know what, Rich, I just need somebody to, to listen to me. If I say, Sam, how you doing? You're probably going to say, I'm all right. I'm doing okay. But then if I ask you, Sam, how you really doing, bro? Then a conversational. The curtain is down. They don't feel that there's a pressure that, oh my God, they're going to be speaking to me and, and I got to hear their shit. Now, what is the most rewarding and the most difficult part about having these powers? For me, it was losing two people that I really cared about to suicide. I've helped thousands or hundreds of thousands, but it's the two that I lost that haunt me every day. What can I have done? What could I have said? But those two that haunt me also push me to push forward so there's not a third. I think we can say that you learn from your mistakes. I mean, you can't take those two people back. However, I think what those guys would want you to do, use the tools that they try to give you and help them out. So that's why I do what I do because a man told me a little boy was walking on the beach and he was picking up fish and throwing them back in the water. And an old man walked up to him and said, son, why are you doing that? Kids save the wall. And the little boy got tears in his eyes. He looked up at the old man. And he said, you see this fish? I'm throwing them back in the water. I can't save them all, but I just changed that one fish's life. So if I could change one fish's life, then theoretically, I'm changing the world. Yeah, and it's a fish that doesn't have to be eaten. There's no gain hook. 
month. But if I can change one person's life, then it's going to create a ripple that eventually will change the world. What advice would you give to anyone who has had or is having your superpowers? Enjoy them. See what you can use them for good. Because a lot of people will say, don't you feel bad because you lost 50% of your vision? I think, well, no. I mean, if I wake up every morning and I can see something, it's going to be an amazing day. I actually wake up every morning with gratitude. So I think we should just take whatever our superpower is and amplify it. And like my friend Gary Vaynerchuk says, take whatever you're great at, triple down on it, and take whatever you're bad at and forget what you're not great at. And when you do, you don't have any weaknesses. You all have strengths. You can ignore it. It's not even fatal anymore. I'm a big basketball fan. I'm a big Kobe Bryant fan. He once said to somebody, I stay in my lane, but I dominate that MF. That's me. If you stay in your lane, but make sure you dominate your lane, can't lose. How can people dominate, though? My way is taking opportunities. Is there another way, though? First, you have to figure out who is the top dog in whatever niche you're in. Find out what they're doing, then work backwards into finding how you can get up to that level. Especially you start a podcast. You think they start looking at the numbers a little bit ahead of you, a little bit behind you, instead of looking at, okay, there's Gary Vaynerchuk. There's the MFCEO project. What are they doing to get those numbers? I can agree with you to a point, but what I don't want people to think is Richard Kaufman to be the next Gary V. If they're going to idolize him and have a mentor, great, but they got to find a way to make their life their life and not a Gary V's life 2.0. I can't be Gary V. I can't curse that much, but I don't have the acumen that he But he also told me when me and him had lunch, he's like, there's only one Richard Kaufman. He said, so just be you. I've been in recovery from alcohol for 34 years. And even in the rooms, they tell you, you hear somebody's stories, take something that you can use and let something go that you can't use. So I just find all these different people. Now I've read over 6,000 books. So I take things from everybody that I learned from. Like you, I take something from somebody else and then I'll buy it and then start molding myself like Play-Doh into the man that I am today. There's certain people that, that I like, but if you're a football player, if you start studying what made Peyton Manning so great, made Tom Brady so great. Their mindset, even if you don't have the physical tools, take their habits and start adding them to whatever you're doing. It seems your life becomes a lot easier because you're more focused. You're studying from people that have already succeeded. Reinventing the wheel means that you have to start over and no one should have to start over because of them. Even though a lot of people don't like them. I'm a big Alex Hermosi fan. I've gotten all his books and I've taken all his tapes and I've started studying. If I can learn from the $500,000 mistakes that he's making, it's not going to cost me 500 grand because he already made the mistakes. I just have to learn from the mistakes that he made and the lessons that he learned. A lot of people, they're so headstrong. Well, I want to make all the mistakes. Eventually you're like, no, somebody else made a mistake. Why do I want to make the same mistakes? I could just move light years ahead because I don't have to go through that. It's already been done for you could be Buzz Lightyear, flying and going to infinity and beyond, literally. Can you remind me, though, how did you hear about Autism Rocks and Rolls again? I can't remember. One of us sent a message somehow. I know it was you or me, but who was it? I wanted to have you on the show because I think I made a post. Mick Foley mentioned the podcast, and he said, talked about vertical momentum, and, I, and you left a comment. Then I started researching you and then I seen all the great things that you were doing and I was like bro I gotta have you on my show and especially because my son is on the spectrum and then I had my friend Tucker Beard which he's also on the spectrum and now he's on his way to be a multi-millionaire you're such an inspiration to me talk about your boy a little bit and your son because I completely forgot about this what would you say when you did get the diagnosis as a father, what were you thinking? In a way, I was grateful because first I knew what the issue was. And then it was like, so he's going to be able to... I struggled with really, really bad ADHD growing up where I couldn't focus on anything. But my son, all of a sudden, he's reading books at two years old and he could tell me all about every dinosaur, fish, or animal at the age of five. I'm like, that's his superpower. So let's dig in on what he loves and let's feed it. Let's jam with it. And I never looked at it as a negative. Because if you look at people like Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, if they're not on the spectrum or even close to it, I'd be really surprised because their level of hyper-focus. Or Temple Grand for the listeners, see. 124 pictures on the ranch from Temple Grandin, like Temple Grandin and your son and myself, are the ones who want to do something. They want to help out. They want to expand on their knowledge in their niche. They're not just going to sit around and be the average farmer. My son, he's in school at Coastal Carolina. He's in senior year. He's going to be a marine biologist and a shark specialist. But if he was working on a farm, he'll be able to tell you the gestation period of every single animal. He'll be able to tell you everything you need about every animal on the farm. I think your son is going to change the world in marine biology. He's probably going to come up with an invention that's going to save the ocean or 
any other sea animal as he had that mindset. Yep. Zero in on that. Because I know a lot of parents, if you see a kid starting to like art or cartoon drawing, they start, oh, try this, try that. No, that's what they really love. Get them in classes, get them involved, build onto that. My daughter is probably on the spectrum of we, te- we tested her right now, but she's such an amazing artist. And I'm pushing her. I'm like, hey, if that's what you love, you enjoy it, do it. You might be one of the most amazing tattoo artists ever in history. I'm going to push you to love it. I don't care what anybody else says about it. It's very aggravating that tattoo artists get judged on a side note because it's an art. People with tattoos are not the most evil person. There are times where I've been a little hesitant because of the tattoos and I don't know them. And I clearly need to stop. I just hate that it was taught to me. I go to see some convention. They're making $300 an hour. I mean, who would ever think that you'd be one of the top podcasters in the world? But you kept putting your nose to the grindstone. You love it. You studied it. You hyper-focused on it. I suck my nose where it did belong. You don't love something. I mean, I say if a person becomes a lawyer, if they don't love it, they're going to do it just for the paycheck. But when they get home, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to be fulfilled. They're not going to feel whole. So you need to really find out what you do love. And then you got to figure out how I can make money off of it and how I can make a career out of it. You have to be able to scale it. So you also are the podcast host of the Virgo Momentum Resiliency Podcast. So why do you think the Virgo Momentum Resiliency Podcast is needed? Because we all need resilience in our life, no matter what it is. Whether you're a kid, whether you're a veteran, a first responder, a CEO, we're all dealing with the same crap. Sometimes a lot of people that they deal with, am I the right person? Am I the right person that should be interviewing millions and millionaires and billionaires and athletes and authors? Am I the right person that should go for this job, even though I'm not qualified, but I think that I can do a good job for this company and offer something that other people can. The imposter syndrome is a very very big thing, especially with me, because anybody I have on the show, I want to make sure that they're relatable. Who do I think I will? So I took a course on imposter syndrome and I had them on the show. So now what the show is about, it's about anybody struggling in life and business we're all struggling with something. So that's why the show is a little bit different because it, it's real. It's what people have been through and how they got out of it. Because a lot of times people will tell you, well, I'm a top podcaster. Yeah, well, how'd you get there? What were some of your failures? How'd you get through it? That's what I want to know. I don't care so much about the front story. I'm more about the backstory. You're a behind the scenes guy, aren't you? Oh, I'm very behind the scenes. When I had you on my show, I listened to every single episode you ever put out because I want to know who the real Sam is. I've even talked to some people, college roommates, and they give me some dirt on some of the people that I've had on my show. They're like, wait a minute, you went that far back? And I was like, yep. Well, it was Thanks. funny too. I had one of my guests, Ben Waits, and for the listeners, C226, Following Faith with Ben Waits. But he was on the Faith Fourth Radio. And when I had him, on the show, he was an adult, but when he was on that radio program, it was college time for him. He was like, how the heck did you find that? Oh, it's on YouTube, dude. YouTube's crazy, isn't it? When I had Steve D. Sims on, everybody knows Steve D. Sims from the book Blue Fishing. But every time he has somebody come on the show, they always ask him about him being best friends with Elton John. And when he came on the show, I didn't ask him anything about that. I wanted to know what it was like being a 17-year-old bricklayer, being poor, laying bricks. He's still with his wife today, Claire, from when he was 17 years old. He's like, how'd you find out about that? I want to ask questions that nobody else asks. And then he goes, aren't you going to ask me about Elton John? I was like, nope, not going to do it. And we were able to sit and chat for 45 minutes. And he actually shared that episode to his huge audience because I asked him questions that nobody else even asked. Well, I'm at the degree to disagree with you on that one, Richard, because I think in a good interview, this is just my structure. I think you have keeper questions, like the ones with what is the most rewarding, the most difficult about having your superpowers. I've always asked that because I want to know what has been the best part of it and the worst part. And then the end, it's just for fun, which we'll get into more later. But I always keep that structure because I think we need to have fun in the end for the audience to loosen up a little bit. But the middle is different because everyone has their own story. And that's what I love about the podcast. And just saying that, I feel like I broke the fourth wall. That's what makes you successful. It's not just fluff. It's real talk, but it's a conversational thing. I've been on a lot of podcasts where they just, they ask you scripted question after scripted question. And I'm like, bro, are we going to have a conversation? Or you just, it's just like a speed date. When you first started the Vertical Momentum Resiliency Podcast, what do you wish you would have known when you were first starting it? I tell this and I laugh at myself because there's no shame in my game. I just put a picture out yesterday, me wearing a purple long blonde wig for no reason. 
just because I sound goofy. So I'm always going to be that crazy guy that you know. But I had a, a podcast called Success Your Why, How Was Your How? And I had 300 episodes recorded and put out, never even realizing it was never even on iTunes. Mm-hmm. So I had to start. That's how bad of a podcaster I was. So now I had to start vertical momentum all the way from scratch, knowing nothing except how to interview people. I had to start all over. And I talked to the people at Apple. I'm going to get that show put on Apple. You're like, yeah, 300 episodes. Uh, I don't think so. So I was well, great in a way that tragedy led you to something great. I bet you like doing the Virgo Resiliency podcast better than the first one because now you know to publish on Apple, A, but B, you get to show more empathy to other people. And now I actually teach courses on how I'm starting podcasts and how to monetize them. I had to go through it all. And I still, every Friday, I still release an episode from the old podcast. I just call it a Flashback Fridays. And I got a lot of great episodes that I still put out. I can see the difference between now and then because then it was just an audio. But now I do video, audio, YouTube, and now we're on like 14 different social media platforms. But I can either see the way I interview people, how it's changed. A lot of the ums, the ahs, the I can hear and I still cringe. I'm like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Or I shouldn't over talk my guests, which I used to do a lot until my wife said, hey, dumbass, stop doing that. Live you learn. Where can people find your podcast? You said it's on YouTube and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Tumblr, Flickr. We're on Apple, iTunes. I think we're on like 14 or 18 different social media platforms. But the biggest is Spotify and I'll make sure to put them in the show notes for you so people can uh, check her out, man. I appreciate it. So you you are a recovering alcoholic and a person who used drugs. So when did you start using drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism? When I grew up, my my dad left at three. My mother was an addict, but she was also a nurse. I was left off with babysitters. I had my first drink on New Year's Eve at 11, and I was a full-blown alcoholic by the age of 13. I figured out before I have that drink, I'm Richard. But once I have that liquor flowing, I become rich and I became a whole other person. I had that whole other superpower. I was funny. I was outgoing. I was gregarious. I had no fear. But then once I got sober, it wasn't drinking anything. I became Richard again, hiding in the closet, being afraid of life. Do you still have personality traits of the old Richard? If I have to become that bad guy, I'm able. I have a lot of friends and they go out and they get in tussles in a bar. If I go out and I get in a fight with somebody, I'm going to kill that person because that's how I was trained in the military for 23 years. So if I have to defend my family, I could become that bad guy, but I'm not going to stay that bad guy. That's the difference between the world champion, kickboxers, martial artists. They know what they can do. They just don't have to act like they can do it. I always believe if you're driving a Bugatti. You don't have to act like you could do 100 miles an hour. So you could do a 55 and still crew. There's a difference between a good martial artist and a bad martial artist. A bad martial artist walks around and brags, says, yeah, I'm a black belt, and then kicks people for no apparent reason. A good martial artist will use it if it's needed. If it's not needed, they're just going to be on the beach with a beach ball. But you have to know, okay, well, I was in the octagon. I know what I can do but I don't want to do it. Somebody did almost start something when we were in Vegas, and I just whispered in his ear, you don't want to do it because you're not going to survive. And then we just walked away. Even Bruce Lee said something, and I'm paraphrasing, um, the best thing about, about martial arts is not having to fight. Because sometimes- I would agree with that. You know what the best part is? The discipline, self-respect, standing still for once in your life. And I say that because we both relate since we have ADHD. We probably can't still still for the life of us or stand still because it feels like we're staying on eggshells. My son, I'm actually looking at his awards. He's got a lot of awards in my office for martial arts. And I think, you know, taking martial arts as a young man trained him to be the ass-kicking kid in college right now. Oh, yeah. I bet people are like, when he comes down the street, yee, let's, let's take a step back. <laughs> Both of my kids, they have the heart of service to where they make friends with everybody, whether they're the football team, whether they're the jocks, the burnouts. So they'll never have a drama issue because everybody likes them and everybody protects them. Talking more about a certain story that I found on a certain podcast. It was, I'm going to call it the 1989 New Year's Eve story. It was mm-hmm. one story that you had where you feel like you either A, decide to become sober or B, had a realization. 1989, I got kicked out of the military and I had to find a job. Bobby, 
in order to get back in the house, I had to go back, either go to get a job and go back to school. So I went to school for be a bartender now. If you're an alcoholic, going to school to be a bartender is not the greatest thing you can do. But I ate the course. I knew everything about alcohol. But I graduated from bartender school. And the first job that I got offered was at a bar owned by a, a police officer here in, in town. And I wish I remembered his name. I wish I remember his face because I'd go up and I'd give him the biggest sloppiest kiss. I would buy him dinner. I'd go decorate his house with Christmas, whatever wanted because I took the job there's even 1989 and everything's going great I'm bartending and I start drinking a little and we're having a great time but then eight hours later him and his buddies come knocking on my door coming to lock me up because I gave away three thousand dollars worth of free drinks and I pocketed five grand they were going to put me in jail for five years for grand larceny at the age of 20 I wasn't even able to, to drink yet but uh, he said, you know what, Rich, you're a 20 years old, old white boy. He says, if I put you in state prison right now, you're going to be somebody's bitch and your life is going to be over. He said, but I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to give you 24 hours to get my money back, which I did. I begged, I borrowed, I paid it all back every single penny. And he said, you got to go to 90 meetings in AA for 90 days starting today. And I think I hit 300 meetings in a row and I haven't had a drink since that day in 1989. So I had to make the decision like my shirt. You guys can't see it. My shirt says, today I decided I had to pick the lesser of two evils. I went to that first meeting and I realized, hey, I'm not the only one that's struggling with it. Even though you didn't end up in prison that time, you still ended up in prison. In the military, I got locked up. I got thrown out of the military for being a drug addict and an alcoholic. And then I got back in again. And then I was about to be thrown out for a second time. But because of what transpired on the morning of 9-11, 8-54 is what changed my whole life. I shouldn't say I'm happy that 9-11 happened, but I am happy 9-11 happened for you in particular. Because, buddy, I would not want to see you up in bars. I think you would be better off here than in there. The greatest day in my life, not because of what happened, but the greatest day in America was 9-12, because that's the day that everybody was an American. There was no other American aboard. There was no Afro-American, no Asian-American. We were all Americans. They sold out of flags the first three hours. So let's talk to you more about your military experience. But the first thing we do is my first veteran I've had, too. Thank you for your service. I know that you probably didn't think you did enough due to the fact that, according to yourself, you said you were a dirtbag. But you were still in there, and I appreciate you doing that, man. I really do. I really, really do. That's one thing people always know about me. I'm never going to sugarcoat it. I was the worst soldier you would ever meet. I was a dirtbag. But the reason I, they kept me for so long, I stayed in for two and a half years, even though I got in trouble like on a daily basis. I was the guy that would do anything. If you told me you needed a wall built, just work 24 hours straight. Okay, whatever you need me to do, I got you. It was just when we were hanging out with all the other officers that I got in trouble. Still put you with people, right? Put me away from the alcohol. That's when it all goes sideways once that Rick comes out. Well, you did join through an army recruiter. So what about the army recruiter made you decide to join the army? I mean, I'm 17 years old. Um, I got thrown out of high school for hitting a teacher in the head with a desk. So it's kind of like, all right, jail or military. I kind of did both, jail and military. I was walking past a recruiter and they had these big TV screens out front and there was tanks jumping over ditches, blowing stuff up. I'm like, oh yeah, I would love to do that. Plus, I never planned to live to the age of 21. So I figured just enjoy life. Let's go out, travel the world and party. And if I'm not going to live past 21, at least let's make it a big part. You know what? In your case, that's a smart thought. Why would that be smart? Let me explain. You said that you wanted to enjoy life, clearly, because you didn't think you were going to live past 21. Because mm -hmm. you're like, oh, man, this is so cool. The thing is, I got to do so many cool things in the military. I mean, I actually got to go to Oktoberfest in Germany in October at the age of 17. I got to roadie for Joan Jett. I got to hang out with General Petraeus. I actually got to see a lot of the stuff that happened where Hitler, where they, the gas tumors, and actually got into some places that you're not supposed to go. I got to get a lot of life experience, even at the age of 17, 18, and 19. I still take it with me today because I have friends that they're 50. I'm 54 now. And they haven't left the town. And when I tell them I actually got to and go to Auschwitz and be able to smell the smells and see the fingernails. Being a veteran, we are the ultimate minority. Everybody talks about minority this, minority that. Only 2% of the population have ever served this country. I tell everybody it was the greatest honor for me to serve this amazing country. Yes, God bless America, man. Really? I'm, can you tell us real quickly what branches you were in, though? I was in the United States Army from 86 to 88 and then got back in 19... 
90 in Army National Guard, and then I stayed in until 2012 when I was involved in a training accident that took my vision. Okay, let's go into that while we're thinking about it. Do you ever miss the sense of sight? I do. I look at it as a blessing because I wouldn't have what I have right now, and I wouldn't appreciate what I have. The day before I got hurt, my military career was humming. I was running a million-dollar company, working with players, NFL, and Major League Baseball, WWE, about to get married. My life was on a high trajectory, and then the next morning, I can't see anything. And then for the next 18 months, my wife had to take me to the bathroom, had to prepare all my meals, all my drinks. It humbled me to my core. The first day I cried when I they went for surgery and I was able to see a blue light. I broke down and cried like a three-year-old because I was able to see color again. I changed the words that I used from I have to to I get to. Like I got mad a couple weeks ago. I had to take out the garbage and it was raining and I was pissed off. And I'm out there and I kicked the garbage can and I looked to my left and there's my beautiful house. And I got me thinking, wait a minute, you're taking out the garbage in front of your new house where... 30 years ago, you're living in a crack house, eating out of the garbage cans. And your house is better than going from back to on the streets where you don't have a roof over your head. I also realized that I'm one drink away from losing everything. Everything that I have is a gift. I want more. Of course, I want a vacation home. I picked out a new boat I want. I picked out a new truck I want. And I think if we look at the universe and say, universe, thank you for the gifts. It gives you more. But I do want to talk to you more about the point where you were homeless. So how did you get to the point where you were homeless? The crazy thing was, I had a job, and this was back in 89. I was bringing all $1,000 a week cash, and I would get my paycheck. I'd get hammered. I would get robbed. I would lose my money. So by the end of Friday into Saturday, I'm back to having no money again. I had the money. It either went up my nose or I drank it all. I would go out and drink 30, 40 kamikazes in a night. I was that bad of, of an alcoholic. Then I would just pass out and crawl home three miles away. Even though you did, did you still get the life necessities like the food, shelter, and bed? If you didn't, how did you get them? All I had was gas money to work. I knew there were certain grocery stores. I knew when they would throw out the dented cans because on dented cans, they take the labels off that they just throw them in the garbage. And I knew what days they threw them out. So I would go dumpster diving, grabbing food. Every day was different because I didn't know what I was eating. So whenever I opened up the can, it was like, surprise. That's what you're having for dinner, buddy. I survived. My mother lived five blocks away. They offered me to come back into the house if I would get my life straight. Here I am. I'm 20 years old. I just traveled the world. I traveled with Joan Jet. I partied in every continent. And now you want me to be in bed or come home by 10 o'clock because mom and dad got to be up at five to go to work. And they're like, well, then you can't stay here. So I can't blame them. Everything in my life is my fault. And I accept responsibility for anything that's ever happened. If anybody is listening to this, I take it full responsibility. And I think it taught me when I go out for dinner with my cousin, I order on purpose lobster tail and a filet mignon. It just reminds me, okay, you're eating garbage out of the garbage can. Today, you're eating surf and turf. Don't forget where you came from. No, you never forget where you came from. There's a good point with that, Richard. Gordon Ramsay. He came from the worst of it all. But I thought his foul mouth was just because of that's his personality. But after learning his story, I 100% get why he has this mouth. And he's telling people to F off because he never forgot where he came from. He got hit with a belt for the simplest little things, getting a milk out of the refrigerator. I didn't like Ray Cardone. I hated him until I watched an interview when he told him about how he grew up and how he was living on the street as an addict and how entrepreneurship saved him and how he recovered. And that's why I like him now. But because a lot of people don't know the backstory. And I think sometimes the backstory is sometimes better than the front story. The way he came from is more inspiring than what we see now. Did he create Hell's Kitchen? It's cool. Yes, it's cool. But it's a story and how he got to Hell's Kitchen better? Yes. Backstories like Mick, when you look back in his backstory, he was getting paid like $10 a night. He was jumping off his own roof making videos. And he tells you, well, I had to pay my due. So that inspires me more than, you know, watching him jump off his roof than when he jumped off Madison Square Garden. Mr. John Lee Doom which I've had on my show. Everybody knows him as one of the top podcasters in the world, making over $300,000 a month from his podcast. But a lot of people don't realize that he was a tank commander in Iraq that lost a whole tanker and that he went through mental health issues, including suicidal ideation. Here's the deal too. He's not the only thought of suicide. I'm looking at another one right now that did. So I want to know who or what stopped you from ending your own life. Yeah, you can make me cry. Thanks. 
My six-month-old daughter, to tell you the truth, because what happened was I got her on duty and you got to go to certain classes for like a year. So they medically discharge you. And then on Labor Day 2012, they came to me, called me in the office and said, Sergeant Kaufman, you are no longer a member of the United States military. You're no longer Sergeant Kaufman and took my ID. For 23 years, that was my identity. That was who I was. So if there's no Sergeant Kaufman, there's no Rick. Rick died on, on 9-11. Who's Richard? And that literally scared me to death. At that moment is when I decided I'm going to end it all. So I called my wife, supposed to meet her down the shore that day. So I'm on my way. I'm going to meet you down the shore. The hardest part was I knew I was never going to hear her voice. I knew I was never going to see my daughter's baby blue eyes. She was six months at the time. I said, I knew I'm never going to see that little girl again. I said, I'm a failure. I'm a failure as a husband, a father. And I got in the car and I decided. I, had, I bought a brand new truck. And I was like, you know what? Because in New Jersey, we have these highways for big concrete pylons on both sides. I said, I'm just going to get this truck up to 100 miles an hour. I'm going to put it on cruise. And I'm going to turn the radio on, shut the eyes. And then when it goes off the road, it goes off the road. It's going to hit a pylon and that's going to be it. So I got in the car, told my wife I loved her and got in the car, got out the car and Truck up to 100 miles an hour, which is not hard to do in a brand new Dodge Ram 1500. Put it on cruise and closed my eyes and turned up the radio. And I'm a heavy metal guy. But for some reason, I had country. As I'm starting to hear, the car starts moving to the right. I could feel it moving. It's going, it's not going to be too long. And then the song by George Strait came on. I saw God today. And picture me holding her in the hospital. Because I was the first one to ever hold her or change her diaper. And I just broke down and cried. And I grabbed a wheel and, and turned it and said, today I decide to be a daddy. And I was about on the side of the road. I told her what happened. And I said, honey, I need help. I said, if I don't get help, I'm going to go home and blow my brains out. She said, okay, just come to me. And then I spent a weekend with them. And then that Tuesday, I seen my therapist for the first time. And I've been seeing the same therapist for 12 years now. Another one of those today I decide I could either been a statistic or I could be a daddy and a husband. I chose to be a daddy. And that one sounds like a lot better option in my opinion. I've talked to a lot of psychologists and therapists, a lot of people that have gone suicide, either victims of their parents committing suicide or almost them committing suicide. And me and my wife were just talking about this this morning that when a person takes their own life, they're just taking their pain and transferring it to everyone around. But I didn't want to do. I didn't want to have my daughter to grow up thinking, did my daddy not love me enough not to take his life? Or my wife had to figure, you know, if I would have took my own life, what could she have said on the phone that day that changed it? It's okay not to be okay. And I got you. I got your back. I'm here for you. My, I got big shoulders and big ears. First of all, I'm very happy, but I am curious. It's Kind of for fun. Have you had now like more respect for country music because of that situation? Yeah, actually, I started get digging into a lot of country. I became a guitar player. I started playing guitar and I started really listening to country because there's so many stories. They're great storytellers. And being, you know, being in a podcast, writing and doing all this stuff and having interviews, facts will tell, but stories sell. I came into listening to a lot of the great storytellers like Tim McGraw, Alan Jackson, Garth Brooks. It's like watching a movie in your mind. I sound a big respect. I agree with you because I like music better than movies because movies give you the movie. They're showing you the film. You can watch it. I don't want to do that. I want to make my own film. When I walk in the morning, I listen to an audible. I'm listening to a Gary V. Crush It Again for like the 10th time. I like it because I can get in my own mind, create the story, listen to it like I'm sitting next to Gary. I seem to absorb it a lot more than I do if I'm just reading a book because it actually puts me in that situation. I think that's why I loved reading so much growing up as an abused child. At six or seven years old, I would go into the bathtub, fill it up, and then I'd lay down in the water so my ears are covered so I could hear the screaming and the yelling. And I would just pick up a book and read it. And I realized that if I can read a book, I can go anywhere in the world that I want. Right. So I actually went to know about your nickname, The Comeback Coach. So why does the nickname Comeback Coach represent you? Well, you can thank Mr. Gary Vayner Chuck. Uh, we actually had lunch together and I tell was telling him my story because he's a big sports guy, he's a big New York Jets guy. And I said, you know, I've, I've been with, in the health and fitness industry for 30 years at that point. I help people from the NFL, Major League Baseball, WWE, World Heavyweight Champion, Boxer, come back from injury. And I said, but I've also, and I told him my stories and, you know, coming back from drug addiction, alcoholism. So you're the comeback coach, huh? I was like, yeah, I guess if you say I I'm the comeback coach. If Gary, if Gary Vaynerchuk calls you something, it sticks. And that's when I started really thinking about it. Everything that I've been through. But it's not just having the name of a coach. It's being able to coach somebody through. Anybody can be a coach. Like, I laugh all the time. I see somebody on Instagram, you're 20 years old and you're a life coach. 
All right. Tell me about the life that you lived at 20 years old. Now, if you're a fitness coach, yeah, I get it. But if you're a life coach, tell me about how it is to have the, the wife and the kids and, and have marital problems. Wait, anyway, you're not married, so <laughs> give a shout out. It's love to Gary. You watch some of his old videos. My wounded warrior hat is actually hanging. You can see it hanging out, hanging in his office on some of his old videos. Knowing your story, I think you're the official comeback coach because in any way you do really good at something, that's survive and prevail. It's not about me. And I tell this to everybody. You're a two-time best-selling author, top podcaster, in-demand speaker. You have a great t-shirt company, great coffee company. I'm like, yeah, but at the end of the day, I'm still outside picking up crap for my 14-pound dog. And I still take out the garbage. So I'm not all that and a bag of chips. I'm just me. I just did a post today on my blog. If somebody asked me, what is the greatest piece of advice you've ever been given? And it was by Gary. And he said, your legacy will always be more valuable than your currency. My daughter has kids. I have grandkids. And they say, well, tell me about grandpa. He was a world changer. I'm more worried about legacy than I am celebrity. Now, folks, we wrap back around after the Doug Flutie Jr. Autism Foundation. So let's hear from them. At the Doug Flutie Autism Junior Foundation in Massachusetts, people are receiving hope. The organization was established in 1998 by Doug Flutie, a former quarterback for Boston College and the NFL, and his wife, Lori, in the memory of their son, Dougie, who was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. The goal of the Flutie Foundation is to improve the quality of life for those with autism and their families. Their biggest action they like to do is give grants and host their annual Stars on the Spectrum golf event. Our goal is to offer chances for physical and social activity outside of work or school, a path for education or employment during the day, and the resources needed to always feel safe, supported, and informed, the Doug Flutie Jr. Autism Foundation says. Make sure to visit them on their website, www.flutiefoundation.org, or follow them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even YouTube to see all the stars they have to offer. Finally, this was my testimony. This would be my testimony for the Doug Flutie Jr. Autism Foundation. All right, folks, we're back, and you might meet Doug Flutie there. You never know. So, Rich, I do want to get more into a book you decided to publish, and that was A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. So when did you decide to publish A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light? I just got to say, Doug Flutie, I love you. You're amazing. Even though you broke my Miami Hurricanes heart. I love you, Doug. I love everything you're doing. What happened was, and this goes back to my lunch with Gary Vaynerchuk, I told him, I said, all right, I don't know what to do with myself now. My career's over. I want to help people, but I don't know how to help them out. He says, well, first I want you to write a book. And I'm like, yeah, I did tell you I'm a nice, great job out, right? He's like, yeah, I don't care. I want you to tell all the dirty shit you've ever done in your life. Huh? What? I want you to go watch the movie Eight Mile. I want you to watch the last two minutes. Then I want you to give me a call back and we'll talk about it. So I want all to watch Eight Mile. And in the movie, Eminem is in a rap battle. And he tells the guy he's battling again. Everything he's ever done wrong. All the bad stuff about it. And Eminem finally says, well, now I told you about it. You can't talk about me anymore because I already told you everything. And I talked to Gary. And he's like, that's what you need to do. Put something out like that. Because like, when somebody comes back and says, you were a drug addict. Yeah, but now I'm clean 30 years. I got a beautiful wife, three beautiful children, a beautiful business. Once you put this book out, now nobody can ever tell you of who you are. Now you can literally start your life over again. I wrote my book called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. I put it out. And the same day I launched that is that I launched my first podcast. It hit number one twice on Amazon. Every chapter is a story of my life. The last part of the chapter is what not to do. Each chapter is a learning chapter. And then the last two chapters are what is addiction? What does it look like? It's not what you think it looks like. And the last chapter is, what is depression? What does it look like? It's not what you think it looks like. So it's actually, the last two chapters are actually a teaching book. 100% of the proceeds go to help people struggling with homelessness and mental health issues. So I don't make any money off of the t-shirts, hats, anything I do, 100% of the profits. You, you all do for the good in your heart because you actually care. It's all about the journey and it's all about paying it forward and changing lives. Daniel Kopp, my uncle was amazing. He didn't even graduate fourth grade. He retired as a multimillionaire. And before he died at an early age, he said, you know what? I got all this money. I can't buy back a single day. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. All this is fun, and but it's all about the journey and having fun in life and helping others while you can help others. That's why I like this show, because I get to meet people. I'm not in it for the money. Are you kidding me? That's at the bottom of the food chain. I, it's a great luxury to have, granted. And I'm glad I'm making some money. 
my off of it. But when I lay my head down, no, that's not the goal. It's that destigmatize autism because I see a need for it and I want to do something good for the world and leave a legacy of my own. Somebody once told me because I actually have an empty cup that I keep purposely empty in, in my desk. And the reason why it's empty is because when I turn it over, I can't pour from an empty cup. I can't help somebody else if my cup is empty. And that's where I first made the first mistake in my first three years of podcast. I didn't monetize. And that means I can't help somebody if I'm paying out and I don't have money coming in. There's no way I can donate to the Flutie Foundation. There's no way I would be able to buy food for families if I don't have the money myself. You also do a speaking engagement. So what is the one message you hope people take from your speaking engagement? When I go speak on stages and I've spoken all over the world, I actually have my own event that I hold every year called Today I Decide. This is my opening speech. My opening words are every place I go. I said, listen, 99% of you just get back on your phone. This is not for you because I'm here to speak to the one person that is struggling today. And most people put down their phone. They're either like, wait a minute, did he just tell me that this is not for me? Why is this not for me? It hushes the room. And I tell them, I'm not here for your wallet. I'm here for your heart. Maybe that person didn't want to come, but somebody said, you know what? Let's go to this event. Maybe they were going to take their own life when they got home. But maybe if they heard something that I said, t-shirt I wear anytime I go on speaking engagements, it's called today I decide. And what that means is the three most important words in the English language are today I decide. Like I'm a big Joe Osteen guy. Whether you decide to be the victor or the victim, that's your decision. We are our decision. And people are like, would you decide? I'll to talk to you today. And it kind of opens up that talking. So Brother, I'd love to speak for your event sometime. I'd love to have you and Tucker Beard and I together. You guys would crush. All right. After this airs, let's talk. Now, we got to talk more about September 11th, man, because it is very interesting. After now that you've seen the Twin Towers and knowing that you changed after people were dying in the Twin Towers, how do you now celebrate September 11th? Where I'm sitting, if I go sit on my front porch, I'm actually sitting in the shadows where the Twin Towers once. I'm 10 minutes away from Manhattan. So we all knew people that were in the buildings that day. And I have a tattoo from 912 that's on my, my arm. But every day I see it, I think of all those people. I think of the 342 firemen and didn't come home. And that's the day, 846 is when I cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, forgive me. I know I've screwed up so many times. Next weekend, I'm getting thrown out of the military for a second time. And I promise I will dedicate the rest of my life to helping people that can't help themselves. Thankfully, they kept me and I became soldier of the year. It's very bittersweet. But I will watch everything that's on TV about it because I want that feeling again. And it seems that after the years are going, you're seeing less and less and less about it. Now it's just a, a historical moment. Yeah, there's a moment that we think, oh my gosh, it's tragedy and, and a story. It's not, no, that, that shouldn't be it. It should be, oh my gosh, this was a travesty. Let's teach our kids about it. There's been movies about it, granted. There needs to be more movies, remakes. It needs to be jammed down our throats. I don't like people jamming things down my throat, but I think this does. I walk every morning. I walk in the cemetery, and in part of the cemetery, they have the hundreds of people that were lost that day. But then they also have a twisted piece of metal that was part of the World Trade Center. And I touch it every day to remind me of that promise I made. For me, every day is 9-12. And that's why every day I wake up and say, okay, you promised to help people that can't help yourself. Now you got to step up to the plate and do it. Exactly. You couldn't do it, but now that you can, people need you, man. You know, like me and you, what we do, we're 99% of the time, we're not going to know we affected somebody. Sometimes you wake up, you're like, damn, I don't want to do another interview today. But then I'll hear somebody say, you know what, Rich, what you said, I was about to take my own life yesterday, but something you said really inspired me. The time I don't want to do something is when I need to do something, because there's a reason why I'm doing it. Yeah, I know I have a person right now in Florida. I'll give her a name. I think she'll care. Jen Hardy. Met her at PodFest. Lovely woman. She thinks I'm this amazing person. The moment I stop, she won't think about it. I'm not trying to make her think I'm amazing because I want to be famous. No, I want her to think I'm amazing because I'm changing that person's life. She has two people on the spectrum. And she thinks I'm this amazing person who's dealt with similar situations. We've dealt with people who have taken advantage of us and have been deceptive. And we've done, I done a full episode on that for the listeners. C239, you've been tricked. But it's relevant and she needs that support. And you're some certain people that they might not ever say something to you. Like I was walking in my town one day and they had a sign up and there was a picture of me. One of the holidays in her town, they hang up big pictures of me when I was in the military. And I was walking past it now and some ladies looking up at the picture. So I stand next to her and I'm looking up with her. I'm like, man, he's a good looking guy. She looks at me, looks at the picture. She's like, you're that Rick Hoffman guy. I listen to you every day. 
And I find you so motivational. And I share it all the time. I'm just afraid to say something. And she was like a 70-year-old Spanish lady. That's when I realized there's people out there listening to us that they may not say anything, but maybe we're giving them a little bit of hope. Somebody asked me, well, if somebody, if you can pick what you do in one sentence. And I'll just say, I went from dope dealer to hope dealer. That's And I, and I realized that somebody out there, or they may not say something. Even if we don't show up, they're going to wonder, are they okay? There's people out there depending on you. You guys don't know. I know something else you had to go through. And this is something I think, I'm just guessing, I'm not saying he did, or I'm assuming really. Your son went through, I went through, you went through even bullying. How did you handle getting bullied? Not very well. I do not do very well with bullies. Because uh, what happened was I would walk home from school every day from ages like seven to nine. And I would get beat up every day. I would get... You know, Wearing hand me down clothes. I couldn't speak right. My ADD was bad. I couldn't talk to people. So I'd get my ass kicked every day for two years. And then one day, they did it again. And there was a bike sitting there. And I just picked up the bike and I just started slapping everyone with the bike. And I put like three kids into the hospital. They never picked on me again. But then I decided I don't like bullies. I don't like bullies because I believe that. So if they're bullies, something's going on at home that they're bullies. So I don't like bullies. And I tell my daughter at all, you can do a lot of things and it won't bother me. But as soon as if I see you bullying somebody, we're going to have a major issue. Because daddy served this country for 23 years, protecting people that can't protect themselves. So I don't like bullies whatsoever. And I'll pull up on a bully in a second. Say, do you want to go? We can go now. Especially cyber bullies. It's a big thing. Because in my town, I'm in charge of, it used to be called the D.A.R.E. program. And I'm seeing how bad teenagers and kids are being bullied. Because it used to be like, if you got bullied, all right, you get bullied an hour after school and an hour before school. But now with phones and computers, the bullying just doesn't stop. On average, 5,000 adolescents attempt suicide every day in the United States. 5,000 a day. And a lot of it is from cyberbullying. So I think it's something that doesn't really get talked a lot. But it's something that if you're a parent, you need to really try to keep in check. And what's very aggravating is cyber bullies are cowards because, listen, I get that I've been bullied and I shouldn't acknowledge this, but I do acknowledge the fact that if you're going to jab me in the back with pencils, then I at least cannot say that, okay, you at least have some dignity by not hiding behind a screen. You probably don't have a lot, granted. You have a 1% probably of dignity, but behind a screen, that's just wrong. And there's a lot of keyboard warriors out there. There's a lot of them out there. I mean, if you don't like me, if I say something that aggravates you, I have a lot of people that may disagree with me on social media, and then I'll direct message them, and I'll be like, you responded this way. What did I say, and how did it affect you, and how can we work this out? And a lot of times, they become my biggest critics, become my biggest fans, because I realize that hurt people hurt people. So I think sometimes we might have to do that. I realize that we might rub people the wrong way. So we, we might just have to give a little bit of grace. Because a lot of times if you send a text, the words may be the same. But if you, there's no context, it sounds totally, totally different. And I think that the big thing is somebody might say something jokingly and then you take it seriously. And then all of a sudden there's a Twitter war. So I think we got to take a lot of it with the grain of salt. And I think even Hormozzi said it in his latest book, if 80 years from now, if they're not going to be at your funeral, who cares what they say about you now? It doesn't make a difference. Well, right, sure. If it makes you feel any better, I'd be at your funeral. Oh, I love you, brother. And you're talking about getting your butt beat. I know they were mostly wasteless, but I know one that changed your life. It's according to you, this African-American boy, you called him the worst word alive. You called someone African-American. That's all I'm going to say. He pummeled you, got you a beer, and now you guys are best friends. Please tell us about that. In my book, it's called How I Was Cured from Racism. Because what happened was, you know, I'm a street kid from Jersey. I got a smart mouth. And he was from Alabama. And he was like six foot five jack. There's strong, then there's country strong. And he was country strong. And he was my roomie. And he kept yelling at me because I kept messing up. I kept screwing up and getting him in trouble. I said the N-word. And he looked at me. And he's like, I know you didn't just say that. Say it again. I said it again. He proceeds to shut the door, took off his hat, and he pummeled me. I would just no, no lie for like two hours straight. And I was bloody, beaten up, pulp. And of course the door is closed, so nobody knew what went on. He said, sit down. And I sat down and then he got two beers, pops open a beer. Said, let me tell you about my grandma. Let me tell you about my great grandfather that were sharecropper. My grandmother and my mother walked with MLK. And then he, he went through his lineage. From that day on, I have never said that word again. Unless I'm listening to my Tupac, unless I'm listening to NWA and, and I'm rapping and singing. But other than that, I got cured from racism. I don't see color. My wife says, Did I? I'm like, and I have a friend, his name is Joe, and he's a police officer. Uh, he used to come to my store all the time. If somebody came in and say, hey, have you seen Joe? And I'm like, 
Joe, Joe. I know so many Joes. Which one? He's like, the black guy. I'm like, I don't know. It's like the police officer's jogging. Oh, Joe. I know Joe. In the military, you're either green or there's, there's no other color. There's no black or no white, there's green. When I got a little bit older, of course, I became homeless again just for being an idiot. There was a black family that, that took me in and taught me what it was like to grow up in a black house. And I lived with them for like three years. And they taught me the matriarchs, the patriarchs of the family. They taught me what, what they went through, what they go through on a daily basis. My wife says, you think you're black. I'm like, nope. I swung out with them all the time. They're my people. People say, well, I mean, you're 54 years old and you're listening to Tupac, N.W.A., Dre. I'm like, yeah. And? Why not listen to it? Well, like I'm at the gym and I'm singing the words. And people are looking at me like, wait a minute, he's singing Tupac with all the curses in it. That's how I'm hearing in my ear. And they got aggravated. When me and him, and I write this in the book, when me and him were walking across each other, he would call me Kraken. I'd call him Spade. But because we had that love for each other, we became like brothers. And I'm still that way with him today. He'll call me up. He'll be like, yo, we're slacking, Kraken. Because we're all people. All lives matter. I was raised that if you they have purple skin, you go who they are on the inside, not on the outside, man. Yeah, but I believe if you have to add a color to lives matter, then you're the race. That's pretty outspoken, but I might have to agree with you on that one. I appeal to everybody. There used to be a professional wrestler, I forget. I think it was Dusty Rhodes, and they used to call him the All-American Man because everybody can relate to Dusty Rhodes. I'm a wrestling fan, so... Let's get into wrestling a little bit. Why is Ric Flair your favorite pro wrestler of all time? Okay, my two favorite wrestlers of all time, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, because all you had to do was give him a mic, and, and he was magic. I mean, there are certain wrestlers, The Rock, that you put them on a mic, you just let them roll. I love the wrestlers because they told a story. Again, Dusty, son of a plumber. Ric Flair, I've met him a couple times. And Ric Flair, the same person you see on TV is the same guy you're going to see out at the bar. Ric Flair is Ric Flair. You're going to get involved in this. And I think those why those three guys are like the ultimate storytellers. Well, how about you check out these current wrestlings? If you have it, check out L.A. Knight. Yeah. Yeah. That guy can tell a story. But he took a lot from The Rock. He took a lot from all these guys from, from the Attitude Era. He did, but in a way, he made it his own. He may have copied off some stuff, granted. I see resemblance, but I don't see The Rock 2.0 in him. I don't see Stone Cold Steve Austin 2.0 in him. I see L.A. Knight. I watched his eight-hour documentary last night called The Wrestler. And it's amazing that in wrestling today, there's not a lot of people they tell story. Like the bloodline, I love that storyline. But I think all the great matches in history, they all had a storyline. And I think that's what's missing from Preston Wrestling today. So I've had Jake the Snake on, Nick. And it's amazing that they're all great storytellers. And I think if you want to become successful in life, if you can learn to tell a story, then the money is just going to come pouring in. Yeah, you can be a book and share knowledge without even having to read. That's pretty cool if I say so. Podcasters, I think, they don't realize how important podcasting can be to a person's career or speaking career. It's like getting a PhD for free. So I heard something about the NCO Creed that is apparently through veterans, so I want to learn about it. So tell us about it, man. NCO Creed, what it means is, say if I become a sergeant and Sam becomes my private. That means from that moment, you become my team member. My goal is to get you where I am at so I can go higher. My goal is not to keep pushing you down, but to raise you higher. My goal is to make sure that you're going to college, make sure that your relationships are good, making sure you're healthy mentally, physically, spiritually. My goal is to take you further than you would ever take in yourself. My guys knew because I always believed that I think it was Zig Ziglar said, I might be wrong, but he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And my guys know you're struggling with something. You know, let's go out for lunch. Let's talk about it. I got your back. You need me. I got you. And once somebody knows that you truly care about, they will literally run through a wall for you. They would literally run through gunfire for you because they know that you actually care about them as a person and you care about your career. You're just not looking at a slot. And I believe there's a lot of people in the military that, and I've said this to plenty of people, I say, sir, I respect your rank, but I don't respect you at all. As an NCO, I believe that I want to take care of you. And if I have to if i know somebody is shooting at sam i'm willing to take a bullet for sam so he can go home and be with sam i'd give my life for sam nco stands for non-commissioned officer that's something we all need i feel like i think we all need someone who is like that someone who is willing to take a bullet for us someone not because we're trying to play the blame like 
he did it. No, but to be like, you know what, man? Take one for the team. I'll help you out on this one. Be in this together. But then I always don't tell my guys. They know I always tell them I was a screw up. I got in trouble a lot. I got thrown out almost twice. But I got thrown out once for sure. And I, but I tell them, like, you got one screw up. That's all you get. You can screw up, but don't lie to me. It's a wrap. You know, if you say, sorry, I got drunk last night. I can't come to drill. I promise this will never happen again. I'll cover for you. But if you lie to me and say, I got drunk, but no, you're at your girlfriend's house and you just didn't feel like coming to drill and I find out about it. Now you're in a whole different world. Or, but my guys know, hey, Sarge got my back. I know he's got me. If I need help, he's there for me. Guys will still message me. You were the best NCO I ever had. You were the best sergeant I ever had. You really cared about me and I loved. So once I hear stuff like that, then I know I did the right. Now, folks, we're right back right here and Adam from the Rock 96.1 radio station. So let's get to it. We want to thank 96.1 The Query, especially David and Dan Hayes, for being a gold sponsor for our Summerfest 96 point run resides in Bloomington, Indiana. And like Autism Rocks and Rolls, they rock and roll too. Visit their website, rock961fn.com. Listen to them live on the website. Catch them on the radio in your car. If you like Kiss, Queen, 80s Rock, or ZZ Top, I think you have found your station. 96.1 supports our veterans like our guests today, so you should support them too. Visit 96.1 and keep rocking. Yeah. All right, folks, and we're back, and you'll definitely rock out if you check them out. By the way, I'm a big Kiss fan, so love you, Kiss. Love you. Oh, heck yeah. You can't go wrong with that. I agree with you on that one, man. They're a killer. I got a couple of their songs. You can't go wrong with rock and rolling all night. Let's put it that way. Exactly. So I found something in your book that you really didn't get into. I want to ask more about your puppy. Can you tell us more about your puppy, Tank? Yeah. For me, when I grew up, I never could have a pet because I think we moved 14 times in my 12 years. So we were never allowed to have a pet. And I always wanted to have a pet. I found an abandoned dog and he took my heart and his name was Tank. I had to name him Tank because I was a tanker. So I'm like, come on, what color name was that? And he was a brindle boxer and I love brindle boxer. But I'll be honest though, I'm more of a pit bull and a rottweiler guy. I just think there's something about a boxer, a pit or a rot where you just look at him. You're like, if I with him, he's going to tear my head off. And they're so muscular and lean. I just, there's something about those kind of animals. They're, they're just beautiful to look at. Oh, yeah. And here's the two. People say those are the most ruthless. Dog, you better watch out for them. Are you kidding me? What I've seen, they're gentle giants. And dogs, it depends on how you raise them, not the breed. Even Caesar Milan, you know, even says that it's not the dog, it's the owner. Even if you take it back, somehow I started the Facebook war. that We were talking about how... If you have bad kids, if you're a parent, you need to take some responsibility. If your kids are out of control, if, you know, you raised them, they may not be all your fault, but it's a lot of your fault. If you can't take care of a dog, don't have a dog. It's the same with children. If you can't take care of a kid, don't have a kid. I I talked to you about someone else you met that I know, too. And I think you're closer to him than me, but I still like him. Don't get me wrong. I was on his podcast, Nowhere to Go, but up. Sean Douglas. So how'd you get to meet Sean Douglas? Ooh, I never heard of him. I loved Sean He's an amazing person, first of all. If it wasn't for his book, I would not have become the public speaker that I am. His ebook literally got me booked to so many places, and he taught me how to be a better speaker. But not only that, he was my first sponsor ever for my old podcast, and he had a brand called Live Your Brand Clothing. Now he's retired. He's a three-time, three-time, three-time TEDx speaker. Now he has where he actually teaches people how to start, monetize, run, and get your podcast ranked. Sean is the guy that does it all, and he believes in me from day one. And if somebody ever says, I want to start a podcast, who do I go to? Sean Douglas is the man. He is the man. And I admire his story, too, from going into what he went through based on what I've heard from a outsider's perspective and a limited basis. He's doing pretty well for himself right now, isn't he? You've got lovely children and I think a wife. He's got a beautiful bride, beautiful family. And I think he's probably the only three-time return guest that I've ever had on. Wow, you guys have really hit it off. I'll make sure to tell him that we hit it off again and we reconnected. That's the thing is anybody that's ever been on my show, I have relationships with now. I've built generational relationships. And I think that's what makes my show a little bit better. Like I'm actually re-releasing tomorrow. There's an Iron Chef that was on my show. I'm Majumdar from the Food Network. Oh, I am too. know him. I can actually reach out to him and ask for a, a recipe, and he'll send it. I can reach out to Steve Tim and be like, hey, I got a question. You know, I, I can, I can re- reach out to Kiyosaki. Hey, I got a question, bro. Because I built those relationships over the years, and I've become part of their ecosystem. Like once I knew I had you on the show, 
I followed you on Facebook. Any social media platform, I followed you. I started promoting you. I would get involved in your DMs. I would get involved in commenting and sharing. I want to build generational relationships with every guest that I have on my show. And everything I do, it's not like force where everyone's, you know, one person's doing the one side. They're just saying, you're my friend. You're my friend. It's We're both friends. Yeah, I think so too. He was on my show and he said, why we hung up? After every episode I'm on, I asked, how can I do better? What can I do better? Who could you introduce me to? But he said, it was, this was December 31st, 2000 of last year, he said, I want you to pick two words for 2023 and just focus on those two words and you'll see how you explode. And my two words for this year were intention and attention. Those are my two words. Since I started doing that, now we're a top voice on LinkedIn and we're a top 4% uh, Facebook page on Facebook. If it's not God, family, friends, business, and podcasting, I say no to everything else. Those are all the four things that I'm going to say yes. So we'll wrap her up here. These are just for fun. Now, what about your favorite movie or TV show and why do you like it? Dude, this is going to sound off the wall, totally crazy. My favorite movie of all time, and I watch it every time, is with Denzel Washington. It's called The Autobiography of Malcolm X. And the reason why it touched me so much, basically it's just one scene, but I have to watch the whole movie because of the one scene where he's sitting in prison and somebody asked him why are you so happy you're sitting in prison he says because the prison holds my body but my mind is free i think about that all the time it's like a four-hour move but every time it's on i want to watch that because it's amazing what he went through and in the end how he realized there's no black there's no white it's all just people and my wife's like yeah every time it's on She's stuck watching it, so she puts me in the other room when it comes on. Dang, she's probably like, get out of here. That and the movie Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. I just love that movie. If the, is the Germany trip you mentioned all your favorite vacation? Or like, do you have another favorite trip that involves the military or not as a trip? And if you do, why'd you enjoy that particular trip very much? Well, this has nothing to do with the military. It was my wife's birthday, and I wanted to get her something nice. She loves Barry Manilow. I think... We've seen him like four times. And I'm like, what would be cooler than seeing Barry Manilow in Las Vegas? So we got tickets. My favorite part of the whole trip was there was a gondola ride. And it was just me and her. And there was some Italian singer singing to me and her. And just holding her hand for that five minutes has been probably the greatest vacation I've ever been on. Because it was just me and her holding her hand, spending time with my bride. And I think that's the best part of any vacation I've ever been on. Though that five minutes is probably valuable the both of you is probably, would you not say, and I'm just asking, probably one of the most valuable times in your life? Probably, if not holding my newborn daughter, changing her diaper for the first time. That would be number one. But that's five minutes in that gondola. I'm a guy that'll cry at the drop of a hat. I'm a big wussy. But that was probably one of my greatest moments in my life. Anytime I can get to hold my wife's hand, even just for three to five minutes, it makes my life worth living. I think you answered a sentimental memory. So now what I would just like is just a funny memory that made you fall on the floor laughing. Okay. This was, I just moved to New Jersey. I just got with my wife and she's at work. And I'm like, all right, I can't cook where the damn. That's why I need people like Simon Majumdar and Brian Jacob in my life. I grabbed two eggs or hard-boiled eggs, three minutes in the microwave. Should be, should be more than enough to cook two eggs. So I'm sitting in the kitchen. I put it in for three minutes. All of a sudden, I hear, pop, pop. I'm thinking people are shooting at me. So I hit the floor. I'm scared. That's this. And all of a sudden, I just smell something burning. I get up. And there's the eggs exploding all over the microwave. And I called my wife. I was like, sure, I'm going to believe what just happened. And she'll never let me forget that. So, guys, if you ever put eggs in a microwave no longer than 20 seconds, or I would literally laugh out loud at myself. And at least it wasn't something, like, deadly. I learned my lesson. Richard, I think that's all. Is there any comments or any closing remarks, buddy? No, but I just want to say, guys, if you're listening to this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you leave a, a written review, not just a hard, because it's... Your written review means five times more important. Let Sam know how he's doing. Because sometimes just hearing those comments on the days that you're down can really push you up. For me, guys, I just want to say you can reach out to me. If you just type in Vertical Momentum Podcast, I'm everywhere. If you need somebody to listen to, you need somebody to talk to, I'm here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can slide in my DMs. You can call me. I'm here for you because I would rather talk to, talk to you than talk about you at your funeral. I would rather hear your bullshit than your eulogy. Guys, I'm here for you. And whenever you talk to me, whatever you say stays between me and you. It goes no further. And I have zero judgment knowing 
from my past, I have no judgment. Well, Richard, I think you've been here for a lot of us, including a lot of people I think you're going to listen to this. So thank you for the work you do and have a great day, buddy. I love you, brother. And thank your mom for everything she does. I truly appreciate it. for this episode please tune in for another episode coming very soon hope you enjoyed listening to me ramble thank you very much